All right, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, as we get into your word, I pray that, uh, Lord, you would be blessed by it and that you would speak to us and your words would stick in our hearts. Lord, the things that I say that just need to be blown away would do that, but that you would um, just find a home inside of our hearts, things that we could take with us today, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well... There was a frustrated school teacher, you guys might be able to relate to this, frustrated school teacher who walked into his classroom and he was greeted by a bunch of noisy, obnoxious kids, okay? And he had been facing this all year long and he was finally kind of fed up with it. And so he went up to the chalkboard and he wrote in huge letters, A-P-A-T-H-Y, okay? And he turned around and there was a kid sitting there and he kind of looked at it sideways and he said, what's apathy? What's apathy, right? And one of the other kids in the back of the classroom said, who cares, right? Who cares? Apathy. Uh, well, that's what we talked about last week. We talked about apathy inside the church and indifference outside of the church. And boy, did the pot get stirred here last week. Uh, last Sunday, Super Bowl Sunday, right? They ran two ads for He Gets Us, and boy, did that cause a stir. Um, most of what I saw uh, on social media uh, the next day was a lot of criticism on both sides of the aisle. Uh, people were pretty worked up about it. Um, one of the topics that was actually trending the next day on social media was Christian Super Bowl. And people were upset because on one side you had uh, people criticizing, they said, well, this is not really presenting the real Jesus, okay? We don't like it. You're presenting a soft Jesus. And then you had the other side that said, keep Jesus out of the secular environment. Keep him out of the Super Bowl. And so you had both sides kind of fiery. There were a lot of heated keyboards by the time uh, the, the day got done on Sunday and Monday. Um, it was interesting to me, though, because the way Jesus, at least in the, in the campaign, regardless of what you think about the campaign, the way that he's presented is more of a social issue issue, right, Jesus? He is an outcast. Jesus was poor. Jesus was an immigrant. Jesus didn't like religious people either, you know? And I just think it's weird because, you know, some Christians were upset about that. And then you have this group of people on, let's say, the secular side, um, and they are all for social justice. They're all in on that until you put Jesus in the middle of it. Then they don't like it anymore. And I think that's kind of interesting. But you had two groups of people who weren't indifferent at all about this topic. But what really frustrated Jesus was indifference. What really frustrated him was people that were just simply indifferent. They didn't pick a side. They just didn't care at all. And the, basically, the bridegroom, we talked about this last week, the bridegroom was going around handing out personal invitations to those who lived around him. But they were so familiar with Jesus that they just kind of shrugged their shoulders. Eh, what's he talking about again? So they were too familiar with him. They just were very indifferent. And Jesus condemns their critical and apathetic attitudes because he says, you guys aren't impressed by anything. Okay, you said John had a demon because of the way he lived. You know, he was kind of crazy, lived out in the desert. He was eating weird things, didn't dress trendy. You guys said he must have a demon. And then I come along, I'm going to all the social events, I'm going to the parties. You said that I must be a drunk. So which is it? You guys aren't impressed by either. None of those things move you. I came in wedding mode. John was in funeral mode. Neither of those things made a dent. So Jesus has some criticism for these towns where he performed most of his powerful miracles, and these people really didn't care all that much. 
And Jesus says, these pagan cities, these pagan Gentile cities, if the miracles had been done in those cities that had been done here, those cities would have repented a long time ago. And yet, here I am in your midst, and you guys have rejected me. You guys were completely indifferent. And because of that, Jesus says there's going to be a harsher punishment at the judgment for those cities because they knew the truth and they didn't take action upon it. Saying, listen, the light of the world was walking your streets and you didn't receive it. And because of that, you're going to get a harsher punishment. You've got a greater guilt. You were given a personal invitation by the bridegroom and you were indifferent. So you're going to be lumped in with those who violently rejected the bridegroom. And some people say, that doesn't make sense. The violent ones, they were killing the messengers. And Jesus says, there's no difference. If you were indifferent towards me, you are in the same group that didn't accept me and rejected me violently. In Revelations chapter 2 and 3, Jesus is talking to the churches. And he tells John, he said, I want you to write seven letters to the seven churches. And these seven churches prophetically represent the seven church ages, the seven ages of the church. And the last one that he says write a letter to is the church in Laodicea. Okay, this is the end times church. And listen to what Jesus tells him to write. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm, you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Don't be indifferent. If you were cold, I could convict you. If you were hot, I could use you. But because you're lukewarm... You make me want to vomit. I don't want to make God vomit, right? Didn't end up too well for Jonah. I don't want to do that either. Be hot or cold. So then Jesus gives the warning. Then he gives an invitation. This is so gracious of our Savior. This is so gracious of God. He warns, and then he gives an invitation. And he never stops warning and inviting us. He never stops chasing us down until our dying breath. He's going to continue to invite us to come to him. He says, come to me, all you who are tired, all that you who are burned out on legalistic religion, okay? You're burned out on legalistic demands. Come to me, all you who are weary and tired of trying to keep up this facade, and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest, and a real rest, not just a Sabbath rest, not just a day off. I'll give you rest from performance-based religion, None of us want to be in a performance-based religion. We fall into it all the time. I was telling somebody last week, I said, I have been in, you know, aggressive schools and sports my whole life. And so, and I'm in sales. So all of these things, you're judged by what you produce, right? Your value is only as good as what you are producing. And so I fall into, danger for me personally, is to fall into a works-based relationship with the Lord. And so I feel better about myself if I'm doing things. Jesus said, you're going to wear yourself out. That is not what this is about. It's not a works-based religion. You need to rest. So if you're tired of trying to keep a set of rules and thinking that you're going to earn favor with God by doing good works, it's not going to happen. You're going to wear yourself out. And Jesus said, all you have to do is take my yoke upon you. That's all you have to do. Let me take control. Let me guide you. I know what's best for your life. 
So take my yoke upon you. You can be really sure that if your religion is weighing you down, if you're feeling burdened by your relationship with Jesus or your relationship in church, that that's not the burden of Jesus. Because he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So we talked about Sabbath last week and how Jesus is our Sabbath. And the funny thing is, I hadn't flipped ahead. I hadn't looked at chapter 12 yet. Now, this might come as a surprise. I don't have the whole thing scripted out. Um, I don't have it all planned out. And so, and I don't have the Bible memorized either. And so when I sat down Monday morning and I opened up the Bible and I got to chapter 12, guess what we're talking about today? We're talking about Sabbath, which is really cool. It's almost like Matthew was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) So he went right into Sabbath. So let's check out chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How they entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for them to eat, for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law? How on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. And he went out from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And he asked him, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Okay. So chapter 12 here, we see a moment where Jesus' ministry starts to take a turn. The people that he had grown up around were indifferent, but now we start to see some active opposition to Jesus and his ministry uh, from the religious elite. The unbelief and the skepticism that they had was masked by criticism. Okay, They were critical of Jesus, which led to the rejection of Jesus, then open hostility. They were openly hostile to him, and then it led to blasphemy, which is what we're going to talk about next week. But it led to an open rejection of Jesus. Um, And the turning point, this is really interesting, because it wasn't the miracles that he was doing that ticked him off. And it wasn't even so much the way he was teaching. It says that the common people heard him gladly. They wanted to listen to Jesus preach. So it wasn't even so much what he was saying. It was that he was not honoring or respecting their traditions. That's what they got upset about. Man-made traditions are a really dangerous thing within the church. Um, Anytime um, we set our traditions or our rituals on the same plane as the word of God and worship, we're in a bad spot, okay? Because we have a tendency to get wrapped up in the process instead of the person, Okay, we get wrapped up in rituals instead of relationship with God. And that's a very dangerous place to be. It's not about rules. It's about relationship. Uh, We say this to our kids, and I've heard it from other people too, that rules without relationship equals rebellion. And the people were really good at rebellion 
because there were lots of rules and not much relationship. When God gave out the Ten Commandments to Moses, um, he did so to provide the people an identity, okay? And it was also to teach them, here's how you relate to me, and here's how you should relate to each other. Um, We wouldn't think that's very necessary. They seem very obvious to us. Uh, But this is a group of people who had been in slavery for 400 years. And so it was really necessary for them, for God to give them some guidelines. Here's how you relate to me. Here's how you should relate to others. And four of those commandments of the 10, four of them have to do with our relationship with God. And six of them have to do with our relationships with other people. And I can tell you that if you focus on the first four, the other six will be a lot easier. Focus on the first four, and that'll really help out your relationships with each other. Here are the first four. You shall have no other gods before me. That one's pretty self-explanatory. You shall not make any graven images. This one's really interesting, to be honest with you, because it's basically saying, don't make any idols of me. Don't make any idols of God. Don't make any images of God. That one could be a really long conversation, but I'm going to go on. You shall not take the name of God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Why was the Sabbath such a big deal? Why did they have to keep it holy? Well, Sabbath, or as they would call it, Shabbat, means a ceasing of activity to rest. God had been actively creating the universe for six days, and then on the seventh day, it specifically says he rested. He ceased creativity. Did God get tired? Or did God run out of ideas? No. But on the seventh day, he said, I'm stopping. I'm going to stop creating and we're going to rest. That's the reason why we only have six kids. Okay? (laughs) Six creations and then we're done. No more. No. Alicia's not here, so I can say things like that. (laughs) But God set the example when he worked for six days and then he set the seventh aside, I, sent you, I said, you want to, God said, I want you to set this day apart. I want you to keep it holy. It's an example of what I did. Because if you don't, what we have a tendency to do is get too busy. Too busy and we lose sight of the Lord. And so he says, I want you to take one day dedicated to me, to focus on me, and to love on other people. That's what the day of the Sabbath was for. And we live in a culture that constantly forgets what's important all the time. We lose sight of what's important. We get focused on all kinds of meaningless tasks, and we forget the things that we're actually made for, which is relationship. We weren't made for work. We weren't made for keeping rules. We were made for relationship, first and foremost, with God, and then with each other. And if we get this right, then we can get this right. Um, And that's what God's saying. Spend time with me. This is the only one of the Ten Commandments that is ceremonial in nature. God said, I need you to observe this day. And the Jewish people took it real seriously. It became actually one of the most important things in their culture. So much so that it had become really burdensome. This Sabbath day, this day that it was dedicated to rest, had become anything but rest. It had become very tiresome. The people were trapped into legalism. And this day that was supposed to be a day of worshiping the Lord and respecting the Lord had turned into anything but restful. Some of the Jewish historians had admitted that keeping the Sabbath was actually harder at times than earning a living. It was harder to keep the Sabbath. How is that? Why? That doesn't even make sense that a day of rest could be so burdensome. Well, there were many rules 
regarding the Sabbath and how you were supposed to keep it, things that you were supposed to do, things that you weren't supposed to do. And you couldn't possibly remember them all. In the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it's called the Talmud, and it's a huge book, talks all about the Old Testament. They have 24 chapters only dedicated to keeping the Sabbath. 24 chapters on what to do and what not to do. There's no way you could remember them all. They became very burdensome. For instance, you couldn't travel more than 3,000 feet from your home. That was considered a Sabbath day's journey, 3,000 feet. You couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. I don't know how they came up with that, but you couldn't carry anything heavier than a dried fig. And actually, if you had false teeth, you had to take them out on the Sabbath because that was heavier than a dried fig and you would be guilty of carrying a burden. You couldn't throw an object into the air with one hand and catch it with the other. No baseball on the Sabbath. Very sad. (laughs) Tailors. Tailors could not carry a needle and thread with them on the Sabbath because they might be tempted to mend a garment. No fires could be lit or extinguished on the Sabbath. If it was already burning before Sabbath, that was fine. Or if it went out on its own, that was fine. But you couldn't start one and you couldn't actively extinguish it. So much so today, a lot of Jewish homes have timers on their lights so that the lights will come on before Sabbath starts. Because if they flip the switch on Sabbath, that is lighting a fire and that would be work. You would be guilty of breaking the Sabbath. This is how legalistic it is. You couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath because if you spilled water out of the tub, you might be tempted to mop it up, and then you would be cleaning the floor, and you would be breaking the Sabbath. So you can see that they were very legalistic. It was just, I would be completely paranoid on that day. I would just want to lay in bed all day long and not do anything because I would be paranoid of breaking the Sabbath. So let's take a look at what we call um, the incident. This is the incident. Jesus and his disciples are walking in the fields. Now back then, the roads would kind of meander right through the fields um, following the landscape. So it might go past the field, might actually go through the field. And when you went through fields, the law stated that if you were hungry and you were walking alongside a field, you could actually grab some of the food and eat it. You just couldn't pack it away. If you were hungry, you could grab some. That was what the law provided. You guys may have read this in your quiet time this week. Um, It's out of Deuteronomy 23. It says, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So if you didn't pack enough food, you could just live off the land. It was reasonable. Couldn't take any with you. So they're picking off heads of grain as they walk through, and those kernels on the grain, are, they have a husk around them. And so what you had to do when you picked them off is you had to put them in your hand, and you had to kind of rub them together to get that husk off, okay, which was a big no-no because that was considered threshing, all right, separating the chaff from the wheat. And then if you had all the chaff in there and you blew it away, then you were guilty of winnowing, Okay, so these are the type of hair-splitting regulations that were driving the people crazy. They were completely burdened down by that. So that's the incident. Here comes the indictment. So the Pharisees are standing there, and they're like, wait a minute. Jesus, look at your disciples. They're breaking the Sabbath. Aren't they threshing and winnowing over there? Now, the first question I have is, what were the Pharisees doing out in the field? I mean, I'm pretty sure it wasn't their field. They must have been farther than 3,000 3, feet away from their homes. 
Now, anytime there's a rule, we got to find a loophole, right? Anytime there's a rule, there's got to be a way around it. They got very creative in trying to get around all of these man-made traditions that they had. Now, for instance, if there was a rope tied between your house and another structure, say a barn or something like that, that was considered an extension of your house. Pretty convenient. So what some of them would do is they would invest heavily in rope. And then they would take that rope, tie it to their house, go down the road, build like a little shack, tie it onto that. I just, I just added onto my house. Look at that. And so they would travel down the road with this loophole that they had created. So they got real creative to get around those. Now, maybe that's what the Pharisees did. I don't know. But they're standing in the fields, seemingly trying to catch Jesus and catch his disciples doing something wrong. And they said, Jesus, your disciples are breaking the Sabbath. Now, I think we all have known someone who seemed to find fault in just about everything. They're professional fault finders, okay? They're sin sniffers is what I call them. They're looking for people to do things wrong. And we see it in social media, all about this He Gets Us campaign, all about this Asbury revival. There are people who just want to find fault, Now, Jesus had some really strong things to say about people who are sin sniffers, right? In the Sermon on the Mount. He said, listen, take care of yourself first. You work on you before you start trying to work on other people. You get the splinter out of your own eye. Oh, you get the the plank, sorry. You get the plank out of your own eye before you start trying trying to take that splinter out of your friend's eye. You worry about you. Don't be hypocritical. Because when we focus on the Lord and we focus on our relationship with him, that results in spiritual fruit. That's what God's after. He's after spiritual fruit. He's not after religious nuts. Okay? He wants spiritual fruit, not religious nuts. And when we start focusing on other people and the things that they're doing wrong, we become religious nuts. We become pointing out everybody else's problems instead of our own, and we're hypocritical. So three things that Jesus points out here to the Pharisees, that the Sabbath day, this day that was dedicated to the Lord, doesn't restrict deeds of necessity. Sabbath day does not restrict deeds of necessity. It also doesn't restrict service to God. And then it doesn't restrict acts of mercy. You're looking at the spirit of the Sabbath. They were living by the letter of the law. Jesus says it doesn't restrict that kind of stuff. First one, deeds of necessity. Jesus combats their criticism by giving them some historical examples. He basically says, I'll give you a big fat for instance. And he starts talking about King David. Now this would have been some real cutting criticism from Jesus because the Pharisees considered themselves the supreme custodians of the law. And Jesus says, don't you guys even know what the scriptures say? That would have upset them a lot. Because, hey, we know the scriptures. And Jesus said, do you though? And he tells them this story about David. There was a time where David was on the run from his father-in-law, King Saul. Now, David had been anointed the next king of Israel, but his father-in-law, who had gone a little bit crazy, he had walked away from God, He knew that David had been chosen, but he said, not if I can help it. And he was hunting David down and he was trying to do him in. And so if you're having a rough time with your in-laws, just think about David, okay? He had his in-laws trying to hunt him down and do him in. But he was on the run with his mighty men. 
And at one point, they had been on the run for a while. They didn't have any food. They were really hungry. And David said, listen, I know where one of the priests is in this neighborhood. I'm going to go over and talk to him, see if we can get some food. And so there's a priest there by the name of Elimelech. And so he shows up all by himself. And Elimelech is like, whoa, what are you doing here all by yourself, David? And unfortunately, David lies to him. David says, you know what? We're on a mission from the king. We're on a mission from God. And uh, me and my men, they're camped out over there, and we've been, on, we've been on this mission. We don't have any food, so do you have any food for us? Now, Elimelech, having compassion for David, gives him the bread that they put in the tabernacle. They were supposed to bake 12 loaves of bread every day and set them out on the table. This is called the table of showbread, okay? And you get 12 loaves of bread symbolizing the 12 tribes of Israel, and they were only for the priests. They weren't supposed to be eaten. But Elimelech has compassion on David, and he knows that love is greater than the law. And so he says, you know what, David? I have this bread, not supposed to eat it, but you guys need it, so I'm going to provide it. All this bread that was supposed to be holy and set apart, he gave to David. Now, he knew that mercy was greater than sacrifice, okay? This priest knew the spirit of the law more than the letter of the law, that love was greater than ritual. But the Pharisees didn't know much about love. The command of the Sabbath was getting to promote love for the Lord and love for your fellow man. Instead of fulfilling the law by loving their neighbors as themselves, they tried to fill it up with loveless and lifeless traditions. So it didn't restrict deeds of necessity. That's what Jesus tells them as he tells them the story of David. Next, the Sabbath doesn't restrict service to God. Jesus just told them about King David, their greatest king, and then he really sets them on their heels by talking about the fact that the priests break the Sabbath every week, okay? They're not supposed to do anything, but they're considered innocent when they work on the Sabbath. In fact, they work twice as hard on the Sabbath as they do every other day because they were supposed to offer twice as many sacrifices. They weren't supposed to lift anything heavier than a dried fig, but yet they're slaughtering animals all day long. Now, I can tell you just with my limited experience with deer, this is anything but restful, okay? There have been days where I'm sitting there and I'm like, I really don't want to get anything today because it's a lot of work. And here they are working hard all day long. Jesus says they're innocent because they're serving worship to the Lord. That's what they're doing. You think about Sundays in churches all over America. This is our Christian Sabbath, right? Pastors are preaching. People are serving in the kids area. We have the worship team up here almost every Sunday working for the Lord. They're not guilty because they are serving the Lord. May we never use the excuse of rest to not serve the Lord. Some people might say, this is my day of rest. I I shouldn't do that today because, you know, this is the day that I'm supposed to be not doing anything. Supposed to be ceasing from activity. But may we never let the excuse of having to rest get in the way of our service for God. Jesus says, there's work being done in the temple and something greater than the temple is here right now. Now, Jesus wasn't mincing words. This wasn't confusing. It wasn't semantics. Jesus was telling them, I am the Messiah. Something greater than the temple is here, and it's me. You know, Paul said that all of these things in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. It's all shadows. It's all pictures of what's to come, of the reality that's on the way. And Jesus says, don't worship the shadows. Okay, don't worship the pictures. 
I'm the fulfillment of those shadows. I mean, imagine if I came home from work and Alicia met me outside. And as I walked up to her, I saw her shadow. And I fell down on the ground and I started caressing the shadow and I started kissing the shadow. She would worry about my sanity a bit, okay? Because that's not really what I want. I want her. I don't want the shadow. And Jesus says, listen, don't long for the traditions, the shadows. Long for the reality. And I'm the reality of that. So Jesus points to King David and Jesus is the king of kings right? And then he points to the priests, and we're told that Jesus is our perfect high priest. He offered himself as the sacrifice for our sins. And then Jesus points to a prophet as he quotes Hosea 6. So we have king, we have priest, and then we have prophet. And he says, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus also fulfills the role of a prophet. A prophet was God's mouthpiece to the people. They spoke directly from God to the people. They gave him his word. They also pointed out things that were to come. They prophesied things. Here's what God is doing. God, or Jesus did that all the time. Jesus is God. He was the mouthpiece, literally speaking to the people. He performed signs and wonders for the people. He fulfilled the role of a prophet perfectly. Jesus is the perfect prophet, he's the perfect priest, and he is the perfect king. And he mentions all of these to the Pharisees, which would not have gone unnoticed. But the Pharisees were more concerned with principles than they were with people, which is a really sad statement. They were more compassionate towards the principles of the law. That's what they were concerned about more so than people. They knew the scriptures, but it had just pumped them up with pride. They were all puffed up with their knowledge. Because God had told them plainly through David and the Psalms, through the prophets, that no matter what you do, you could sacrifice all day long. But if your heart is not in the right place, if you're not doing it purely as unto the Lord, it's really just, you know, it's really just disgusting to him. He doesn't care at all. Paul says they're like filthy rags. If what we're doing for the Lord, all of our works, if they're done for ourselves, for self, self-notification, self-notoriety, instead of just worship to the Lord, it's like filthy rags. And Paul had more of that than anyone else. God's people should be characterized by compassion and by mercy. Unfortunately, that's not the way most of the world sees us. Most of the world looks at Christians like Pharisees, okay? Because we have a lot of rules, and we can often be accusatory. Don't do, you're not supposed to do that. And we don't look very much like the Lord. We can look very hypocritical at times, some of our brothers and sisters. And it's not impressive to the world. Now, we have our rules. We can't live up to that perfect standard. We can't do it either. That's the reason why it's hypocritical. We can't live it out the way that we're supposed to. But we are submitted to and following the perfect one. Our faith, our trust is in him. That's the difference. But Jesus said, I am merciful. You need to be having mercy. They'll know you're my disciples by your love, not by your convincing arguments, right? Not by how many rules you keep, but by your love one for another. And Jesus here uses the phrase son of man. 
Son of man is a prophetic term for the Messiah out of the book of Daniel. So when he says son of man, which was, he actually used that phrase to describe himself the most, um, son of man. And when they heard that, their ears would have perked up. They knew again, he says it again, I'm the Messiah. Something greater than the temples here. And by the way, I'm the son of man. I am the Messiah. They would have got the point. The temple, the Sabbath, all of it points to me. I am the reality of that. Okay, last part here. The illustration, that doesn't mean we're close to being done. It just means it's the last part. The illustration. Jesus, he leaves and it says that he left there talking to them and he goes into one of their synagogues. Now, it wasn't his synagogue. It was their synagogue. It wasn't about him. It was about their rules, their traditions, right? All of their personal beliefs. What a tragic event if churches in our country become their churches and not his church. It needs to be his church. We are the body of Christ. And what happens a lot of times in America, and I don't really understand it, is it becomes very territorial. It becomes about us four and no more, right? It's about us. We are the body. And people get very territorial about that. Um, they become very exclusive. Things like, you know, well, hey, you know, we're Third Baptist, and we really got it going on over here. Or our church has a really edgy name, and we've got really cool merchandise. We've got stickers that you can put on the back of your car. It becomes very exclusive, and I don't, I don't understand it because we are collectively the body of Christ. I was meeting with a pastor uh, Friday, and we were kind of talking about the idea. I said, you know what would be cool is if we got together uh, a handful of churches, and we rented out like the football field, the football, not the Chiefs, but like Liberty football field, right? And we all got together, and we just had a big worship service. What would that say to the people in Liberty about the church? If we all just got together as the body of Christ and worship the Lord, because that's what we're supposed to do. It's not about our team. And I've told people over the past couple years, when they come in, I'm like, listen, I would love it if this was your church home. I would love it if you were part of the fellowship. But if you're not called here, that's fine. Just go someplace where Jesus is central, where he's talked about, and his word is elevated. Not man's ideas, but the word. And I'm okay with that. Just be someplace where the Lord is central. Because when we get to heaven, gang, we're not going to be split up into denominations. Okay? You're not going to have the Baptists in the back and the Charismatics in the front. You know? You might be standing next to a Presbyterian in heaven. It could happen, okay? We're all going to be there together. So there's no point in having teams here on earth. So Jesus is in the synagogue, and they ask him, they say, hey, um, Jesus, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they look over at this poor guy. He's just sitting there in synagogue, and he's got this withered hand, and they use him as a way of trying to trap Jesus in his words. Now, they used this guy because it clearly wasn't a life and death issue for this guy. On the Sabbath, you could, if somebody was sick, you could do just enough to keep them alive, but you couldn't do anything to heal them. If somebody was dying, you could do just enough to get them through to the next day, and then you could heal them, but you couldn't do anything that would actively heal them on the Sabbath. So here's this guy. He just has a withered hand, and they're like, is this okay? Because if you're the Messiah, you wouldn't break the Sabbath. You would, you would keep this tradition. You would not heal him. So they weren't, here's the amazing thing to me. They weren't denying his ability to heal. They knew he could heal the guy. They're just trying to see if he would break the tradition. And, you know, the very acts that convinced humble people that he was the Messiah were the very things that ticked them off, the things that got them angry with Jesus. And he says, 
Which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Yes, it is. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. Jesus gives them an immediate illustration of what the spirit of the Sabbath is all about. What are we saved for? In Ephesians, Paul says that we are saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works, that we may walk in them. And Jesus here is appealing to any sense of compassion that what these guys might have. He's like, listen, I know you're hard-hearted towards people because you want to keep the law, but what about animals? Do you have any compassion on animals at all? Oftentimes, it's easier. Oftentimes, it gains more attention if we have compassion on animals more so than people. And we live in this weird, weird culture where animals have been elevated to this status of importance, sometimes even more so than people. We have TV commercials, right, where we have save the animals, right? Save these animals that are in the shelters. And we have weepy music in the background, and you can save these animals. But we will walk past homeless people every single day and not think anything of it. According to the American Pet Products Association, in 2021, okay, 2021, $123.6 billion was spent on pets just here in the United States. Over $123 billion on pets. This is really the tragedy of Hinduism. Uh, one of Elena's friends went on a missions trip to India here a few weeks ago, and they just got back. And she, unfortunately, she got pink eye when they were there. And then they passed it around. They all had pink eye together when they were there. And largely in part, they have, they have disease and they have poverty over there because they have elevated the status of animals above humans because they believe in reincarnation. And so you can't kill that rat over there in the corner because it might be mean old Aunt Bertha reincarnated. So you can't kill the animals. And so they have disease. They have all kinds of problems. They don't kill cows either. They just let cows roam around, around people that are starving to death. That's where the phrase sacred cow came from. They have these sacred cows that they will not kill. It's a very messed up society. They elevate animals over people. Now, God has a sense of humor. Because as I was sitting down writing this, I had to get up to let my dogs out. And one of them had peed on the carpet. Okay? I was not elevating my pets at that moment. I wanted to put them in one of those commercials right then. Okay? God has a sense of humor. Jesus knew that their legalistic hearts were hardened towards people. But perhaps they might still have some compassion on their animals, which is the reason why he asked them this question. And they didn't say a word. They didn't answer him anything. They had no compassion. They weren't interested in it. They just wanted to see what he would do. One of the brilliant things that Jesus does is he asks a lot of questions. If we want to engage people in a discussion about God, we don't just start peppering them with comments and arguments. If you really want to have a conversation, ask questions. Ask people, why do you believe that? Because most of the time, people don't know why they believe the things they believe. They can't articulate it. And so when you ask them, it's much more powerful if they come to that realization on their own. Why do I believe this? What do I need to believe? What is true? Instead of trying to beat people over the head with the Bible, and we'll get to that. It, of course you have to talk about the Bible. But they need to get to a place where they're questioning, where they know, I need to hear this. I need to read this. What is this all about? 
Many times the Pharisees were just simply stumped with Jesus' questions. That's the wonderful part about it. Uh, These guys were trying to trap Jesus. He would ask them questions, and they didn't know what to say back to him because their traditions didn't line up with Scripture, quite honestly. These things that they were holding so dear didn't line up. They were trying to trip him in his words, but what he would do is he would turn it around and show them the contradiction between their theology and their ideology, these ideas that they had. We need more theology and less ideology, okay? Because they had downgraded God's word and elevated their own ideas, their traditions they put on the same level as God's word. Uh, Alicia and I were talking this week, I don't even remember how it came up, but we were talking about Christian worldview, and Christians in our culture, in America, have lots of ideas that don't line up with Scripture. Uh, the Barna Research Group did a, did a research study, and basically what they found was that only 9% of Christians, people who call themselves Christians, have a biblical worldview. That the things they think, their ideas, their beliefs, actually line up with Scripture. 9%. That's tragic. Because the lens that you view the world through is going to determine your values. And what determines your values is going to determine your behavior. And if your your behavior, if your ideas about the world aren't founded on Scripture, then your values are going to be all messed up. And you're not going to have the right foundation, and your behaviors are going to bear that out. Whenever, and this is what we see in the progressive church today, right? Whenever you hear the word feels or feelings, That's a red flag because we don't go by our feelings. We go by what the word of God says. We put our ideas in line with the scriptures. We don't find ways to make the scriptures line up with the way that we feel. So Jesus approves of good works and then he does the good works. The spirit of the Sabbath is to focus on the Lord and to lift the burdens of other people. And I'll just point out here that this is the importance of meeting together on Sundays here in church. Uh, We don't meet here every Sunday because it's a tradition. Uh, Maybe some people think it's a tradition. Maybe that's the reason why they're not interested in coming, but that's not the reason why we meet here. Um, Here's the really hard thing about preaching that message. You guys are all here. (laughs) So if I want to preach that message to everybody else who's out there, that's kind of a tough thing to do. But um, you guys are faithful and you're always here. But the reason why we meet on Sundays is because that's the day where Jesus walked out of the tomb. That's the reason why this is our Christian Sabbath, the day that Jesus defeated hell, death, and the grave. So this is the day that we set aside for that, the fellowship with each other and to help lift one another's burdens. And that's what we're going to do um, as we finish up. Um, Elaine is going to come back up, and um, I think you can probably come up now. Um, And she's going to play. And what I'd like you to do is we're just going to spend some time in prayer. So you can huddle up with just, you know, four or five people around you. And it might seem kind of awkward, especially if you don't know the person, to kind of huddle up and um, just ask them, you know, what's going on in your life right now and what could you use prayer for? Uh, Because here it is the Sabbath day, and we're focusing on the Lord, and it's an opportunity to lift the burdens of others. Paul says, Lift each other's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. That's how you fulfill the law of Christ, by loving on and helping one another. And so we're going to lift each other up in prayer. But when we don't have a right understanding of who God is and his word and the way that he works, we can become very critical and very defensive of our, of our traditions and our ideas. So much so that it says the Pharisees went out and conspired on how to destroy Jesus. They were so ticked off that he healed this guy, that he restored his hand, that they went out and they decided, we're going to try to get rid of this guy. We can't subvert him, so we're going to try to kill him. 
Listen, legalism is always the enemy of grace. Always. We are saved by grace through faith, not through legalism. And legalism will always kill grace. Paul tells us that the law is a taskmaster. The law is brutal. It points out all of our flaws, the ways that we don't mess up. But even in the law, there is a reflection of God's grace because it's pointing us towards our need for a Savior. I can't do it. I need a mediator. I need somebody between me and God to deal with my sin problem. And that's the reason why Jesus came here. He is our mediator. There is still a rest for God's people. There is a rest. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. If you're trying to find rest in this life, you're going to be really disappointed. Even things like vacations. I love vacations. We're we're getting ready to leave here in about three weeks. We're going to go on a family vacation, and I love it. But guess what? When you get back, it's all still waiting for you. Especially if when, I remember when our kids were little, we'd take vacations where we'd go to amusement parks. We would come back more exhausted than when we left. So if you're looking for rest in a a vacation, it's not going to happen. Maybe it's not a vacation. Maybe it's a location. You know, if I could just get that house, or if I could just move into that neighborhood, or be with those people, I could find rest. You know, that would release some of my anxiety and I could rest. Maybe it's not a vacation or a location. Maybe it's a vocation, right? If I could just get that job or if I could get that promotion, I would become less anxious. I could take a deep breath. I could relax. But it's not a vacation. It's not a location or a vocation. It's all about Jesus. He is our real rest. Jesus does get us, okay? But he gets us because he created us. He is our our creator, and he knows what's best for us, and we can rest in him when we trust in him. This man with the withered hand, all he had to do was just reach it out. When Jesus said, reach it, when he said, stretch out your hand, he could have said, I can't reach out my hand. It's withered. But he didn't even say anything. He was obedient to what Jesus asked him to do. That's all he had to do. Obedience and trust. One of the depictions of God in the Old Testament, and again in the New Testament, is of a shepherd. He is called the Good Shepherd. And the shepherd's role was to protect the sheep, protect them from outside attacks, from dangers. And then he was to also care for them because they were completely prone to disease and distractions and getting into all kinds of trouble. And he would also lead them into rest. When David wrote about this, this is what the shepherd boy, King David, had to say. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That sounds like rest to me. A sheep that is completely contented, completely happy, being with his shepherd. All we have to do, if you want ultimate peace, all you have to do is put your trust in the Lord 
rest in him. Don't live by legalism, okay? And we look forward to a day where we have ultimate rest, where we get to be with our shepherd physically forever in eternity. That's what we're looking forward to. That's our hope. But between now and then, he says, put my yoke upon you. Let me guide your life. Don't be anxious. Trust me. Let me guide you. And you can have rest in this life. You don't have to be anxious. All you got to do is let me take control. Amen. Amen.